0: Okay, let's pray, and then we'll look at Acts chapter 8. Father, we do trust in you. You alone are uh, worthy of our worship. You alone are the one that is worthy for us to pray to, to seek your help. God, you alone are are the one who is capable to rescue us from ourselves. God, you alone are uh, worthy of changing us further. This morning, Lord, we do ask for uh, your grace and mercy in the upcoming upcoming conference, not only for those who speak, uh, but also for those who who listen. Father, we also pray for uh, the technical things to run smoothly. Lord, we continue to pray for the family members of, of those in our church who who lost loved ones this week. Um, but in, in a, because of the hope that we have, we know that they have not really lost them, only temporarily, but they will be reunited with them if they um, have mutually trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Even as we sang that uh, the grave will not ultimately hold them, but you will once again resurrect them to a glorified body. Father, we thank you that Um, Anyone who trusts in you can know that upon death, their soul is immediately present with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we do pray as we study your word this morning that um, your truth in the text will be clear, and we pray for your spirit's conviction and comfort in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've never been a soldier, so I've never been at war, and therefore, I've never been in a real battle. Some of you actually have. I can imagine the possibility for confusion on the battlefield, especially in close hand-to-hand combat. In such a situation, I can imagine two opposing armies would want to clearly mark who is who, to know friend from foe. Because it might be hard to tell in the heat of the battle how challenging and confusing and dangerous it might become then if there were some enemies hiding in amongst them, clothed as if they were on the same side. Or what if the enemy could create division so that the army, which should be on the same side, is not working together? There's no question that a spiritual war rages cosmically In the unseen realm, the world is the arena, but the battle is over the glory of God in the hearts of humanity. The great adversary, Satan, would usurp God's glory for himself, and he'll do anything he can to taint and tarnish God's glory. Such is indeed a fool's errand, but we can see why he would not only twist truth to deceive... But also, he would be particularly interested in aiming attacks where the gospel is victoriously advancing. So, where we are in Acts, there has been some massive growth of Christ's church in Jerusalem after Pentecost. And Satan undoubtedly thought that he was gaining ground through the persistent hard-heartedness of the Jewish religious leaders against Jesus and his followers. And now, with Stephen stoning at the hands of the Sanhedrin, that has opened the floodgates for the first broad persecution of the Christian church in Jerusalem. But while Saul thought he was inflicting damage on the church, at this point also siding with Satan, although he didn't know it, God was in fact accomplishing the very mission that Christ had commanded and promised in Acts eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we see persecution is one tactic, confusion is another. Philip's ministry is meeting with great spiritual success in Samaria. Will the believers in Jerusalem unite with these mixed breed believers? Or will old divisions remain? And with some kind of spiritual power having previously been displayed in Samaria, how will the believers now distinguish the Holy Spirit's work from that which is pagan and false? These are the tensions we find in our study of Acts chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. There is a need for clarity where there is potential for spiritual confusion. Read with me beginning in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they, the apostles, laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. A central thread woven through these verses is the theme of the Spirit's power at work in Samaria. Power is mentioned again and again. The Spirit's power working generates a dramatic response from the people, including Simon. The same response generates a need for the apostles to confirm. This is indeed the work of the Spirit being displayed in Samaria. And it is the Spirit's power we find Simon yearning for in his heart, which generates a confrontational warning from Peter. So let's turn first to verses 9 to 13, the reception to Philip's preaching because of this great display of the Spirit's power in Samaria. As we go through each of these three sections this morning, I would like us to ask and answer questions in two different categories. So you have this on your handout, and I'll show it on the screen as well. The first category is to figure out why the author is telling this to his audience. Why is he doing this? These are questions we should always ask ourselves as we read and study the Bible. Why this? Why now? How does it fit with the author's overall purpose? The second category of question we're going to ask works to broaden and to bridge How should this fit into the broader scriptural theological understanding, and how do we bridge the situation in the text to our own lives? Again, something that we practice every time we study God's Word. So what does it accomplish to introduce Simon the sorcerer's reaction to the Spirit's work in Philip's ministry? Why does Luke tell us this? In fact, What happens in verse 12 is in the context of this introduction about Simon. I believe that it shows the extent of God's power working through the Spirit in Samaria, and it contrasts God's power with other spiritual forces. Simon was doing some magics or sorcery that really did amaze the people in Samaria, verse 9a tells you, so that everybody paid attention to him and They thought that he was a manifestation of God's power, verse 10. Of course, it seems that he himself initiated the idea, verse 9b. Did you catch that? He amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. (laughs) He initiated the idea, but they, they went along with it. And then verse 11 repeats... They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. However, what happened when the people experienced the real power of the Spirit of God in Philip's ministry? Now what happens? Simon is less impressive. Their attention shifted, and rightly so, Simon's sorcery paled in comparison to what the spirit is doing. Back up to verses six and seven. You'll have to do this in your text you're holding in front of you. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Because unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed much greater than the kinds of things Simon would have been doing. To be sure, we get the idea that Simon did some stuff that actually impressed people, which is likely a combination of trickery and a combination of spiritual evil in pagan practices. We see in this a common human tendency toward synthesizing their allegiance to Israel's God with other pagan religious practices. It would have been true to some degree, even within Judaism, but definitely more prominent in Samaria, particularly in a city with significant pagan influence. But historically, most segments of Judaism would attribute pagan sorcerers performing miracles to Belial or Satan. Luke's readers then are meant to view this magic unfavorably, first of all, and certainly as inferior. What the sorcerers did in Moses' day, you might recall, remember Stephen recently preached and related back to to Abraham and to Joseph and to Moses. What the sorcerers did in Moses' day in Egypt was to replicate a plague or other sign on a smaller or much weaker scale. They could either by trick or actually doing it, turn a little water into blood. But what had God already done? Turned all the water into blood in the land of Egypt. They could replicate making a little frog appear, but frogs coming out of the Nile and overwhelming the land everywhere, they couldn't replicate that. Or even, you remember the serpents They could replicate a staff turning into a serpent, whether by trickery or by evil. But what happened to their staffs? Eaten by the one that Aaron had. Moses' staff, right? Eaten. So that's what we have here too, just in the reverse order. He's been doing things, but not nearly on the scale of the power of God. How could he? So not only does the Spirit's power shift everyone else's attention to Philip's message, but Simon himself supposedly believes and follows Philip. Did you see that in verse 13? The first half of verse 13, even he believes and is following Philip. I'll tell you now, though, because you read the rest of the text with me, we reserve judgment on whether or not this conversion is genuine, not only because it's too early to tell and Luke doesn't say specifically, but whether or not... We can say with certainty there's undoubtedly a serious question about his motivation, generating more than a hint of doubt. Even here, the second half of verse 13, the word that you have translated for great miracles is literally great works of power. Is Simon's response a genuine submission to Jesus as Lord and his only Savior, or is he amazed and enthralled with what he perceives as great power? What is clear so far is that the Spirit's power is much greater than whatever Simon is doing. What is also clear is that the Spirit's power was drawing attention to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Philip preached faithfully. And it is that very issue to which we turn our attention in order to answer a theological question in this context. And I'm taking this question not just from here, but from the context of the entire passage. But how do we discern spiritual truth from falsehood? Well, in order to do that, we really need to answer this question. Is Christ and his kingdom central? Is the true gospel clear in what a person is doing or saying? Focus your attention again on verse 12, please. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings clarity to spiritual confusion. God is using Philip as an instrument of the Spirit's power, but Philip isn't the focus. The focus is on Jesus Christ and his kingdom, which Philip evangelized, it literally says. That's proclaiming the good news. Philip evangelized faithfully. People are being baptized as an outward demonstration of, of the new commitment in their hearts. I want to connect this to something that the Apostle John teaches, because the Apostle John, in the text that we just read, he goes down with Peter as an, on this apostolic errand to Samaria. The Apostle John gives this Christological focus that we're talking about as one of two primary tests for distinguishing spiritual falsehood from God's truth. In John's first letter to the Christian churches, he writes about the fundamentals of true Christianity. Like a loving pastor, what he says is comfort and confirmation to those who are staying true to the fundamentals of sincere faith. But in that process, there's also a warning about those Who are teaching falsehoods. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, here is the first test that John gives. Is there clear confession that Jesus is God who came in human flesh? Listen to what John says in 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Every religious system that is not about confessing Jesus Christ is Lord... Every religious system that does not understand that Jesus was God the Son incarnate who atoned for sin and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high and returning to claim his own, that system, that religion is not from God. And then you can claim to be a Christian But if you do not believe that same thing, proclaim that same thing, it is a spiritual falsehood intentionally twisted by the devil, and it is not from God. See, John isn't talking to them about people who are far off. No, John is talking to them, warning them about people who are nearby, Christianity is literally right relationship to God through Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God offers forgiveness and restoration to sinners by his own grace through the work of the divine son. We receive that gift by grace through faith in Jesus. Anything or any spiritual teaching that dilutes the full deity and full humanity of Jesus is not from the spirit of God who himself inspired the teaching concerning Jesus, which is recorded in God's word. We're going to come back to that when we talk about the next three verses in John 4. We're going to continue this. So the Spirit's power blows Simon's sorcery out of the water and generates a huge response to the gospel in Samaria. But how will the Jewish church respond to Samaritans coming to faith in Jesus? Well, now we have this confirmation from Peter and John in verses 14 to 17, and also I'm including verse 25. See, there's a need for clarity for the church about this powerful ministry and reception of the gospel in Samaria. So the focus shifts from Philip to the apostles. In fact, we don't hear about Philip again until verse 26, unless he's included in the they of verse 25, which I think he might be, because the next thing we hear of Philip is he's going from Jerusalem further west And so he may be included in traveling down with the apostles back towards Jerusalem and witnessing to others on the way. But what does it accomplish for Luke that the apostles send Peter and John down to Samaria? Well, Peter and John's presence brings clarity. They're able to confirm the ministry that the Spirit is doing through Philip, and especially that Samaritans are genuinely coming to faith in Jesus. Their prayer for them to receive the Holy Spirit likewise then lends apostolic authority to these new believers in Samaria being united into the covenant community. Do you see how this is confirmation and clarity for the body of Christ? I've mentioned before in our study of Acts that at times when a new group of people especially is being reached with the gospel, there's some kind of obvious manifestation of the Spirit that serves as confirmation, not just for them, but especially for the church at large. So there is each time apostolic affirmation. That's what happens here. That's what happens with the Gentiles who are saved when Peter preaches to them in chapter 10. In fact, we, we hear in verses 46 and 47 there that there's a note that speaking other languages and extolling God is confirmation that they have received the Spirit. Then again, when a dozen of John the Baptist's followers in Acts chapter 19, verses 4 to 7, Paul taught them that they must believe in Jesus and, and baptize them, and then he also laid hands on them. There are those two places where that happens this one and that one. They received the Spirit and spoke languages and prophesied. Now, I wonder, due to the similarity with those other instances, that it might be possible the inference here could be that there was also a manifestation of speaking in various languages. But that isn't explicit, so we shouldn't insist on it. What we do know is that many other places in Acts, because apostolic affirmation isn't needed, it isn't the focus, individuals and even groups are believing in Jesus and receiving the Spirit and being baptized without any such outward manifestation every time. Remember what we've seen already, that after Pentecost... Multiple times it's saying the numbers of the people of God are increasing in great amounts, and and we are led to believe people are trusting Jesus by faith, they are receiving the Holy Spirit of God, and they are being baptized without. But so so what I'm saying is this is the unique confirmation for the body of Christ that this new people group, look, they too are in the spirit of God. They are, in fact, a part of the covenant community. These barriers are being broken down. So the Samaritans are one in the faith with Jews. Even as, remember we saw, even as Hebraistic Jews are one in the faith, so too Hellenistic Jews, and now Samaritan Jews, and pretty soon it will be Gentiles, Like you and me, I suppose, most of us anyway. Again, as we have said before, we must take the balance of New Testament teaching to know if things described in this transitional period of Acts are normative. Is this something we should always expect? Is this something we're commanded to practice? in Acts especially, but even with all biblical narrative, we must view it more broadly in terms of the author's message and theological purposes. So if in this section it is apostolic authority which brings clarity to spiritual confusion, what about situations that we might face today? How do we know if a movement is from God? The question we should ask to know if a movement is from God that our text shows, and I'm going to take you to John, First John four again. Would the apostles confirm this spiritual activity? And how can you tell? How do we know the difference between chicanery or pagan sorcery versus the true work of the power of God through the Holy Spirit? The first test we discussed is that the Holy Spirit's work draws attention to Jesus of Nazareth as the true Christ, God in human flesh. Now our text and John's second test also intersect at this point. Is this spiritual movement worldly, or does it submit to the apostles' teaching in Scripture? Look at 1 John 4, verses 4 to 6. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, these false teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. But we are from God. Now, I'm going to have to ask you, when he says we are from God in this next reference, is he, only, is he talking about all believers generically, or is John now speaking about the apostles? I think it's the latter, because he says, whoever knows God listens to us in contrast to these false teachers. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Since Jesus himself conferred upon them this this apostolic authority, what they teach is from God. So whatever the apostles would confirm as being consistent with the Holy Spirit's work, as they do with Philip's ministry in Samaria, we know it's from God. But if that spiritual movement doesn't submit to Christ as Lord, if it diminishes him in any way or his work in any way, and if it doesn't submit to the apostolic teaching recorded for us in the Spirit-inspired scriptures, then it isn't from God. There's a second test. Before we end this topic of the confirmation and clarity it brings to send Peter and John down to Samaria, look at... Verse 25 again, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Notice that this also leads to further apostolic teaching, bringing even greater clarity for the new believers, and then evangelizing in more Samaritan villages on the way back And that's yet further confirmation that the Spirit is indeed bringing Samaritans into the kingdom as well. Here's a map. Um, You've seen this one before if you were here last week. This is Philip's and the apostles' route back down from Sebasti or Samaria, the city of Samaria back down to Jerusalem, gives you an approximate route. So you see how it hooks to the right or east a little bit on the way back down. Now look at this map that is more zoomed in for you. See that section of Samaria? If you go from the city of Samaria, which is almost central on that map, I know it's all too tiny, but these are just for you to see. As you go right and then down towards Shiloh, which leads further south toward Jerusalem, there are uh, marked on there some heavily populated areas of Samaria. So as they're making their way back down to Jerusalem, you can imagine there would have been a great many villages they could have stopped in to preach the gospel. And even the apostles are now further inspired to do this because they see the the validity of the Spirit of God moving amongst the Samaritans as well. And again, I told you, I think Philip makes this trek with them as well. Okay, now we turn from the reception to the gospel and the confirmation of the Samaritans believing to the confrontation between Peter and Simon over Simon's desire to wield the Spirit's power himself, this confrontation in Simon's heart, verses 18 to 24. Again, the Spirit's powerful working in Samaria not only confirms the spread of Christ's church beyond Judaism, but also highlights the spiritual struggle for the hearts of men. What does it accomplish to highlight the collision of Simon's heart with Peter's warning? It introduces, in these earliest stages of church expansion, the possibility of false conversions and the probability and danger of falsely motivated would-be leaders and teachers. This raises serious questions about the sincerity of Simon's conversion due to the indications about his motivation. What is Simon's focus in his request? And how can we tell by the way Peter focuses his rebuke? What is Simon's focus? Verses 18 to 20, and Peter begins to respond. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money <laughs> like, a, like a sorcerer would do. Sorcerers at the time would pay for some incantation or some... Uh, drink or some weird thing to try to make this happen. And so he thinks he can pay for this. Saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And if you've been following Acts so far, and you remember Ananias and Sapphira, you're now wondering if Simon is going to keep breathing The first part of Simon's response, or the first part of Peter's response, I'm sorry, is that the Spirit is the gift of God and not some sorcery we are performing by our own power. We can't sell it to you. It's not something we can give you. In the same breath, he's also saying the Spirit's power is not for sale, Because God alone can bestow his spirit. The spirit's power is not for personal gain, because God alone receives the praise. The spirit's power is not a means to your own ends, because God, the Holy Spirit, is accomplishing God's purposes. Peter's indictment goes even deeper. Look at verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Simon's request his behavior is overflowing out of his heart. He has no part or lot, which means no share of something. He has no part or lot because his heart is not right with God. So you you ask yourself as I do, are we dealing with a misguided or sinning believer or are we dealing with one who is not a believer? You know, when Philip was preaching to them and and Simon responded, I wonder if you know, would Philip have known whether or not Simon was sincere? Do the apostles even know for sure if Simon was sincere? Does Luke know for sure if Simon was sincere? I, they might. We are less certain. But with these words here and, and also early church tradition suggesting that Simon was the first false teacher, I lean towards Simon being false. False. What Simon must do, Peter says in verse 22, is repent. Repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. In your prayer to the Lord, seek forgiveness for the wicked intent of your heart. And this is because at at present, the next verse says, he is in a state of bitter envy or, or bitter poison. He is in the bond of iniquity. We're familiar with the New Testament concept that until Christ sets us free, we're enslaved to sin. Sin rules us. Satan is, in fact, our father, whether we know it or not. So, too, this desire for power is a poison of which Simon must stop drinking. And then Simon's response in verse 24 is enigmatic. Pray for me, he said to Simon. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Is this repentance or merely a desire to escape from the consequences of sin? I think you can tell that I lean towards the latter. Sometimes, perhaps even often, we just can't be absolutely sure whether or not someone is a believer. Time will tell. Standing before God certainly will. So, Peter must quash this wickedness now because Simon could be a dangerous false leader among these people in this Samaritan city with whom he has already been very influential. What about us? How can we decide whether or not to follow? We've already seen that the gospel must be clear and the true Christ exalted. And there must be submission to the apostles' authority, which is codified for us in the New Testament scriptures. Finally, then, we can bring clarity by being discerning about what appears to motivate any leader that we might follow. What can we discern about the character and motivation of key figures in any movement? Just as we must not ignore red flags that give us pause about certain spiritual activity, If there's a spiritual activity and and it gives you pause, you should not ignore that. If nor should we ignore red flags about a person's character, how many times have we seen the harm that it has caused the church when we ignore someone's character? I'll give you an actual example by name briefly because many of you have heard of Mark Driscoll. You may recall that Mark Driscoll was teaching things that sounded like sound doctrine, not just sound doctrine. I mean, some of us would be like, uh, hey, it was also like Calvinistic sound doctrine. (laughs) But there were always questions about Mark's character. Even now, there are questions about Mark's character. None of us is perfect, but some of us demonstrate a wrong motivation for why we're doing what we're doing. Some of us demonstrate a desire for power and even a wielding of God's word for our own ends not to glorify Christ, not to build his kingdom, but to build our own. We think things like these red flags. This looks like a pursuit of power and personal pursuit of personal gain, not really glorifying God alone. It looks more like building this person's kingdom rather than Christ's kingdom. They want to add additional revelation and teaching to God's revealed word or elevate worldly wisdom alongside the Bible. They do not take pursuing holiness seriously. Or there are other glaring character issues in the leader. This looks like a paltry and puny version of what it would look like if there were really if this were really being accomplished by the spirit of the one true god this is not an exhaustive list but it's a start so we must saturate ourselves with god's word and test the spirits to see whether they are from god so In a final effort as we conclude to move us toward more application, how does Acts 8, 9 through 25 help us bring clarity to spiritual confusion? Because spiritual battle rages, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, we need these tests for clarity in spiritual confusion. And it's also true that we can be duped by a facade of glorifying God. We can be duped by human wisdom, Colossians 2.8. Even as we can be deceived by the false intentions of our own hearts, but God has given us his spirit, Galatians 4.6, the same spirit who has given us God's word. So the passage from 1 John 4, 1 through 6 confirms a couple of primary tests accurate Christology that Jesus is God incarnate and submission to the apostles' teaching in God's word. Another test that we see here is the test of a person's character and motivations. And then how do we proceed? So here are some thoughts for you in closing. First, you must apply the test to yourself. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 2 Corinthians thirteen five. We must be warned that we could be false and not be God's true children. Jesus taught in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 23, that there are people who will say to him, Lord, Lord, but I did stuff in your name. And he'll say, I don't know you. Do you submit to Jesus as, as, the, as God who came in human flesh? Do you submit to Jesus as the one whom you desperately need to atone for your sin? And who rose again and ascended to heaven to be advocate for his own? Have you believed that he is the only means to right relationship with God and therefore confessed that Jesus is Lord? We must also always be warned that we can yet have wrong motivations as believers. We must continue to listen to God's word and be attentive to godly people around us, to caution our hearts. And we must frequently repent of sin and confess it to God, 1 John 1, 1.9. So I'm going to close out this list with things that Jude, Jesus' half-brother, instructed the church when he was warning them about false teachers. Listen to the things Jude says in the conclusion of his short letter, Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit... Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We must build ourselves up together in the true faith and bind ourselves in God's love as we wait for Christ's return. Jude 20 also indicates that we should be praying in the Spirit. So if you take Jude 20 with these next verses, we should be praying for God to expose false teachers and bring, praying for God to bring people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. What does that sound to you like? Proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to your doom. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We must proclaim to them the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ while keeping ourselves holy. And finally, we must remain calm and confident in the promise of our Lord. The reason I tell you this is that if, if, spirit, if a spiritual battle is real and there are powers at work that are greater than your strength, the reason John and Jude comfort us is because the one who is in you is greater than the one who has the power over this age, who is at work in, the, in human wisdom and in the world. So listen to how Jude concludes, so you can be calm and confident in the promise of our Lord, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are glorifying yourself. You have revealed yourself to make your name great. You are making a people for your own possession to make your name great. Satan and his spiritual forces are at work to tarnish your name, to try to rejuvenate to usurp your glory for himself. And God, we know that because we are born, in our human flesh, we are born with sin. We're rebellious and glory seekers ourselves. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to humble us, show us our need, so that we will respond in faith to Jesus Christ alone. Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to be loving and kind and gentle when we see something that is false. When, when people who are close to us are, are being drawn into it. But help us also to be, to be bold and courageous when something is desperately false that is drawing people away from you. We desire to do this not for our glory, but for yours. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.